and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And uh, quick apology right at the top. My audio might sound a little bit fucky. Uh, I do not know what's up, but there's something weird going on with uh, the audio interface that I use for recording this. I'm going to do what I can to make it sound good in post. I hope that I'm able to make it at least sound palatable. Uh, but if I if I'm not, it will only sound like this for a couple episodes because I'm I'm in the process of moving and I'm going to try to set up a slightly more centralized recording space using my other interface that generally sounds better. So uh, just, yeah, hopefully it's okay. Bear with us. And it'll if it's not okay right now, it'll be okay again soon. But anyway, hey, Dylan, what are we yes. talking about this week? So uh, the thing we're talking about this week is... Um... What the way I pitched it was uh, bad game design versus tricky game design, mm-hmm. and this is more of a game design specific discussion, less so storytelling. But I th- I think you know the design of a game does lead into the way the player interfaces with the game, which leads into kind of the takeaway from like certain moments that create these emergent narratives. Absolutely, and. You know, the the caveat at the top here is that we are not game designers, so this will be strictly no. from a, like, playing games and having played a lot of games standpoint. But yes. this is very much uh, a fan aficionado type of thing. Yeah, but I mean, you know, to tie it into our general thing, we've had plenty of episodes where it's more looking at how people talk about games and how people talk about interacting with games. So this is kind of fitting into that yeah. broad trend. So... When you when you pitched this idea, what was the like impetus for you? Was there a particular game you'd been playing that you, that that put yes. this in your head? Um, I'd been playing Star Fox Zero. A friend lent me their Wii U, and I've been playing Star Fox Zero on it. And I had a conversation with another friend who found Star Fox Zero's controls to be very frustrating. Um, and then on top of that, there was a recent YouTube video by YouTuber uh, Narell, um, who he he talked about the controls to Star Fox Zero and how. They're not very good, and um, I'm on on Twitter. I'm friends with a handful of game designers uh, who, and a couple of them were talking up Star Fox Zero's controls, and so that kind of piqued my curiosity. And I asked to borrow my friend's Wii U, and I spent a day like going through like the first six or so levels of it. And I guess I should start with uh, Star Fox Zero's controls for people who don't know. Uh, like me? So, yeah, so Chris, uh, the way that Star Fox Zero controls is interesting. Like, from, from the base level, like, the way the buttons are laid out is not intuitive to someone who is used to Star Fox controls. Okay. Um, you, uh, the, the trigger buttons don't do, you know, do a barrel roll. That, that's not what uh, you do anymore. That's t- the barrel rolls and the tilting the ship that makes you go in a direction faster. That is now mapped to the right stick. And okay. yeah, it's it's a little weird. And the uh, triggers are now now I'm trying to remember, but the, the triggers are lock on. They're they're lock on and when you're in all range mode. So that's that's how you lock on to enemies. Why do you need to lock on to enemies, Dylan? Well, the reason why you would want to lock on to an enemy in Star Fox Zero is because to aim in Star Fox Zero you have to use the reticle, which is now a free reticle that you move with gyro controls. 
However, the reticle on the TV is not 100% accurate. So how do you aim in this game, Dylan? I hear you ask. Well, uh, straw man I invented. <laughs> um, the, the, way you, the way you aim in this game is you use the Wii U's gamepad and the second screen that is built into the gamepad. And you are basically, as you are moving, piloting the R-Wing, Star Fox's, uh, like, kind of space plane X-Wing fighter. Uh, it, Star Fox is a dogfighting game for people who don't know. Yeah, we... Um, <laughs> sorry about that. That was a bit of assumed knowledge on our part, but yeah, it's a classic dogfighting rail shooter game series. Right, I, I should hope you guys... <laughs> well, anyway... <laughs> um... Yeah, so you are aiming with this piece of plastic while trying to use your thumbs and fingers to move your R-Wing while moving the piece of plastic itself to move your reticle, all while trying to pilot something that's on the TV screen in front of you. That's wild. It is. Um, and it's very cumbersome, it's very clunky, and I don't blame people who think that is shit. <laughs> <laughs> um however it is my shit and we're going to talk about why um and <laughs> <laughs> so i guess it's the the thing about star fox zero is that you don't need to look at the screen for every target you're aiming you can kind of approximate it at times which is still sloppy and clunky and not very convenient for the player and i am not about to argue against that however um i think the design of Star Fox Zero, the way the controls work, and the way the game is designed around those controls or designed with that additional perspective in mind, leads to some very fun um, moments of like, you in your actual real-life space have to kind of duck in and out of like, aiming mode uh, versus piloting mode, and I, I'm not gonna say that's immersive, but like, in a way the 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 clunkiness of it, the cumbersomeness of it makes it, I don't know, it, it, I don't want to say it makes it feel more real, but it makes it feel kind of like you, you're given another layer that you have to juggle, and yeah. you feel like a pilot, like, frantically having to switch between their monitors as well as what's going on around them. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. I mean, it's, I think a lot of the reaction, the negative reaction to it is that it's, it's positioning itself at this weird, just from like what you have described, I've like, I've been watching some gameplay footage uh, mm -hmm. in the background while we've been talking. It's positioning itself almost as like the middle ground between like classic Star Fox rail shooter, you know, arcade dogfighter kind of mm -hmm. gameplay and something a little bit more flight simmy. Yeah, I could see that. Like it does. It does kind of have smatterings of ace combat in there. Yeah, like it's it's not fully committing to either, like, extreme end of, like, the, the you know, flying a plane video game types, but it's it's taking elements of each in a way that, you know, I have not played the game, I cannot speak to this, but, like, I could totally understand not gelling with, with people on, yeah. on a large scale, but also I could totally see that absolutely being someone else's shit. I'm, I'm reminded of... Uh, what was that vector graphics flight sim for the for the Switch that we had back when we lived oh, together? Oh gosh, I know exactly what you're talking about, and now I can't think of it. I'm gonna let me dogfight roguelike because that's what it was. Um, 
A Sky Rogue. That's what it's called. Sky Rogue. Thank you. Sky Rogue had this really fun system where you could play it like a traditional sort of arcade-style uh, dogfighting game. You know, just holding the controller as standard. Or, because of the Switch Joy-Cons, you could have a Joy-Con in each hand, and the one in your left hand you would hold horizontally, and how far you rotated it forward versus backwards would adjust your throttle, while you were holding the other Joy-Con in your right hand vertically and maneuvering it like an old-school, like, flight sim joystick. I forgot it had that control setting. Yeah. <laughs> that was and wild. It was, it was wild, and again... Kinda clunky, not mm-hmm. super great. Like the the lack of any real haptic feedback because you're using like you know in controller gyros made it kind of hard. And like I didn't usually do as well playing that way as I did playing the like more traditional mm-hmm. button layout. But I fucking loved that because <laughs> it was weird and quirky and like. I guess to to bring back that idea that the way that you propose this topic of, you know, bad design versus tricky design, I want to throw in a third option there mm. of like interesting but flawed design. Right. Cuz uh, I think there's a lot of games like that or even eccentric I will, design. Yeah, I will even say like inter- interesting and non-standard design. Mhm. Cuz I think that there are a lot of games out there, like, you know, there's there's a ton of games that all follow a pretty standard sort of, like, game design aesthetic, especially when it comes to, like, controlling a player character. The, the, the idea of how to control a character in a first-person shooter has been a solved problem for decades now. Mm-hmm. The question of how to control a character in a like third person kind of beat 'em up action adventure game while there's variation those variations are kind of a solved problem now like there are people doing new things with it but the general framework for it is there yeah people don't try to reinvent the wheel which i think yeah. is a problem no yeah but then when people do usually it doesn't work perfectly the first time no and i don't th- i think that the idea of chalking that up like oh that's bad design is overly reductive because i think sometimes it is indicative of just like or i'm not even gonna say sometimes always if somebody is choosing to put aside the established like gameplay vocabulary in favor of something completely different there's a reason for that they're doing it for a reason not just because like they didn't know better because any like you know Anyone who's setting out to make a game, even if they're not very good game developers, even if they're they're not, like, I'm not going to say classically trained, that doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I They've I probably understand. played games, they probably know, like, oh, usually if I hit the jump button, it feels good if a character jumps right away. Or like, oh, usually a first-person shooter, the left or the right stick will control where you look. So the decision not to do that shouldn't be viewed as bad, it should be viewed as, you know a variation with intent that either, you know, worked for you as a player or didn't. Right. Um, I guess that segues into something else where I, I guess, yeah, I, I feel like we, as a community, is, is that the right term for uh, the gamers? 
as a pig pen. As a as a pig pen. Uh, I, I I think something that is has become common within the discourse is this idea that if something isn't immediately enjoyable, like and it's it's like something that you have to kind of take the time to like dissect and try to you know, maybe not necessarily learn, but like something you have to adjust to, like it's automatically bad design. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I definitely I'm not gonna say that like every single eccentric idea anyone's ever had is perfect and we're just not no. engaging <laughs> with it the right way. Um, but I, I do wanna say like you know, I I feel like there's you can kinda dive deeper, I guess, or you know, like if not like I guess there's two ways I wanna like tackle this. The the first way is that maybe that's kind of missing the forest for the trees. Um Yeah. You know, you're you're kind of zeroing in on this one thing and you're not appreciating the ways that maybe the game is built around that. Or yeah. you know, yeah. m- maybe it was a design oversight, but like it was an oversight because the developers didn't even consider like I don't know. Um yeah. but I, I feel like and this leads to my second point is like there in a lot of ways sometimes it just feels like it's such a tiny part of the game that like when people can't move past it, they're kind of setting themselves up to not enjoy the rest of the experience. Yeah. And like on the one hand, mm-hmm. I can get it. Like if you especially as gamers as a whole are getting, you know, older. A lot of us are millennials, and as such, are now late twenties, early thirties, right? Even older. Like you know, I I do not have as much time to play games as I used to, and that bums me out sometimes. But like for other people like that, I can totally get why you know if you pick up a game and something about it is weird or different, and it's not weird or different in a way that it immediately like clicks with you. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with being like, oh, okay, I, this game isn't really for me. And, you know, not wanting to spend your limited hours putting in the time to, like, try to figure out that weirdness in mechanics. Right. I should have I should have definitely made that clear. Like, you yeah, yeah. And I, I knew that to... I knew that you were going <laughs> to okay. agree with me on this. I just yeah. wanted to also say that out loud. Thank you for, like, bringing it into the air, because I realized I'm, I missed that bit of yeah, yeah. real estate that we should but I But at the same time, I think even if that is even if you take that tack and like that's totally chill writing it off as it's because the game is bad or it's because this design is bad and not at least you know spending a little time to think about it or giving the benefit of the doubt of like okay maybe this would have clicked for me if I'd played for a few more hours or maybe this is you know maybe this is tying into something that I didn't get far enough to mm-hmm. get in or even just maybe this was this developer's first time trying this idea and it need to be, needs to be iterated on because right. that's also something that's like, okay, here's an example perfect for that thing. Okay. I have recently been getting a little bit more into Monster Hunter. Uh, okay. Monster Hunter is a weird series. That's true. It, have you, which one have you been playing? I have Rise. I've been playing World. Okay. Uh, I don't okay. have Rise, but I'm thinking about getting Rise for my Switch. Um, right. I've been having fun but, so far, so. Yeah. Like, if you are used to, as I was when I first picked up Monster Hunter World, if you're used to third-person games falling either into... Prom. What? You almost said Monster Prom. Monster I probably Prom. did. <laughs> Sorry. Monster Prom World. Uh, 
if you're used to your third person action games falling into like either the, you know, Assassin's Creed to Devil May Cry kind of character action versus like standard platforming world or into like the Souls-like category, Monster Hunter's going to feel really weird when you first pick it up. Oh, yeah. The attack we animations are all very distinctly timed. There's like combo trees that are kind of hard to wrap your head around at first. Mm-hmm. Like monster, it, if if you do not know what you're getting into, it's very easy to pick up Monster Hunter, go to on a first hot fight, and be like, I have no idea <laughs> what this game wants me to do mechanically. Oh, yeah. I spent, like, a solid hour in the training room just trying out the different weapons, trying to see what made sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. And here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Monster Hunter has put out, what, Monster Hunter Rise is, like, the fifth or sixth Monster Hunter game, I want to say? It's got to be more than that. More than that, probably. a lot of Monster Hunter games. Yeah. It's the sixth Monster Hunter game. At least, it's the sixth mainline Monster Hunter game. There's been... A bunch of spin-off games and expansions and things. Okay, that would explain that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the point being, they have had, at this point, six mainline games and a bunch of, of expansions and spin-offs and things to iterate on this idea, and this is still what they've stuck to. And I have never played the original Monster Hunter or Monster Hunter 2 or any of those, so I don't know what they felt like immediately, but I know that some things have stayed the same like most of the mon- most of the actual attack animations most of the monster animations have you know been iterated on and and scaled up to match graphical fidelity but the bones of a lot of them from an animation point of view are still the same and that's going to have a big impact on how it feels when you hit that attack button and you start swinging your great sword the size of two refrigerators lashed together <laughs> So clearly, even if you pick it up and you have uh, you dissociate for twenty minutes like I did my first time playing Monster Hunter World, it's not that it's badly designed. It's just different. It's going for a very different and a very unique mechanical feeling, mm-hmm. and that gets back to your idea of like tricky design. Boy, howdy, does Monster Hunter have a fucking learning curve? <laughs> yeah. Um, one of my favorite games of all time. Um. Is it cool? Or can we change the yeah? Go for uh, it. Game? Okay. Sorry, I, I was just thinking about this as you were describing Monster Hunter. Um, but uh, one of my favorite games of all time is Sin and Punishment, which mm-hmm. is infamous for um the the game was designed specifically so that the player would have to hold the Nintendo sixty four controller in a different way, i.e your left hand is actually on the left prong of the Nintendo 64's three-pronged controller, and your right hand is on the middle prong. Wait, what? <laughs> that so, hurts my... So, I'm like, I'm, I'm putting my hands in that configuration. It feels so wrong. That, well, that's, that's one of the two ways, the default. Uh, con- There's also like three different configurations, but the default okay. configuration was designed with that in mind. Um, yeah, so... In this game, you use... Okay, for, so for people who've never held a Nintendo 64 controller before, they are weird to hold. Um, they were not designed for humans. Yes, but the way, the way that humans... <laughs> they were designed for Zaphod Beeblebrox so, <laughs> from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> the way that we as a society 
had agreed to tame the wild frontier that was holding a Nintendo 64 <laughs> controller was that the left hand was to hold the middle prong of the three-pronged controller, um, and that hand would be responsible for pulling the Z-trigger and using their thumb to move uh, the control stick and maybe potentially press the start button. And then you would have your right hand with your index finger on the right trigger, and then your thumb has to make sense of the six buttons that it can press. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sin and punishment. A, B, and four different C buttons. <laughs> yes. It's a full party there. Um, <laughs> the gang's all here. The gang's all here. The, uh, the way that Sin and Punishment is designed by default is that you use your left hand to move the character with the control pad, uh, just left and right, um, and then you can double tap in either direction to dash. Use your left index finger to press the L button to jump. Um, and then you use your right hand and your uh, the index or your thumb to move the uh, reticle with the control stick because it's a shooter. And then you press the Z button to fire. So it's it actually controls a lot like a modern first person shooter or third okay. person shooter, except um, you're using a control pad. And also it's the fucking Nintendo 64 controller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you can also you also have the option of using the C buttons with your right hand. So you can hold it the normal way if you want. You can hold the with your left hand in the middle and your right hand on the right. Um, but what that means is you're using your right hand to move the character and your left hand to aim. That's so weird. And that's how I learned. <laughs> okay. And it's 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 really unique feeling. It it feels weird, but once you kind of get it into a flow, it you're you're not even thinking about it anymore. It's kind of like how uh in GoldenEye on the Nintendo, Nintendo 64. I think by default, the configuration is um, the control stick is tank controls and you use the C buttons to strafe. Okay. The, or tilt your gun up and down. And so it's very, very bizarre for anyone who's grown up with a first-person shooter since the first Halo game, I want to say. Yeah. I, I want to say Halo standardized that stuff. Um, for consoles, yeah, pretty pretty handily. Yeah, for consoles. Uh, but I guess what this creates is, like, it's kind of a challenge in its own right, but, like, it also, it, it's kind of like, I don't know, uh, the, the closest thing I can compare it to is learning how to drive a car in stick. Where it's yeah. like, yes, it's extra things for you to consider. No, it's not going to be, like, a lot of cars that you'll drive. But at the same time, there's there's almost something kind of, like, it's it's like learning a skill that you won't actually need just for the sake of it, I guess. Yeah, I can dig that. Yeah. It's like um, taking taking out like some trying out some needlessly fancy recipe that involves some kind of like wild cooking technique you'll probably never use again just for right. the sake of like I want to see if I can. Absolutely. And I I think moments like those are kind of cool too. Like, Absolutely. It's it's definitely something it there's definitely a learning curve involved. Like that's the biggest thing. And <laughs> I remember uh one of my friends tried it. He just could not wrap his brain around it. It sounds uh, a little bit mind-bending to me as well. It is. It 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 actually is. Um but it's like once it clicks, you're just kind of like, "Oh, I'm I'm doing it." Hey. And yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to talk about that. There, there's not really like a greater story significance to it, um, but it's I don't know. I, I think like there's a space for 
these unique experiences because it's like once you get it the game is difficult either way so once you get it like now you're like oh hey i can play this game yeah speaking of uh mechanical or like weird weird game interfaces that do feel like they have narrative uh implication i want to talk once again i know i brought this up on the show before but about the single best game review that kotaku.com ever wrote and it was for metroid prime i don't remember this Tell so me about it. Y'all, y'all remember how we were saying that uh, first-person shooters basically codified what controlling a first-person shooter on console was supposed oh, to feel now like. now I know what you're talking about, yes. For a long time. Yes. Well, uh, Metroid Prime was the Metroid series' first rollout into 3D. They went for a first-person perspective, uh, and they just threw that whole thing of how uh, first-person shooters are supposed to control in the garbage can. Uh, the GameCube has a left analog st- or a right analog stick in the form of the C stick, and they said no, that does not control the camera. Instead, that will let you cycle weapons. <laughs> in order to move the camera freely and look around, you have to stand still and hold the trigger button. At which point, the right, st- the left stick, which usually handles movement, will instead handle what wh- where your gun point. For fast and actionful sequences however you do have a lock on button you if you hit the i believe it was the right trigger you samus will just lock on to something in in range and point her gun at it and this kotaku article the first line of it is when samus uh, when samus aaron points her or shoots at a target she does not miss which is bullshit because i miss all the fucking time in the prime <laughs> no but, but like I, the, the 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 vibe the intent in that statement is true like yeah you like the the i think that that statement does a lot to point to this is an intentional choice on the part of the designers of this game they wanted to they didn't want to make a traditional first person shooter where you had to rely on skill to like like mechanical skill of aiming the reticle precisely in the heat of combat they wanted to make an exploration game where you're playing as Samus, and Samus is an expert bounty hunter, so if you want Samus to shoot at something, you hold down the lock-on button, and Samus will shoot at that thing. And Metroid Prime, again, it's a weird game to control, especially if you're coming at it after having played, like, you know, a Call of Duty or something like it. The game was actually pretty intuitive uh, for me as someone who's never played a first-person shooter before, like, at yeah. the time of me originally renting it back in, like, second grade or whatever. Yeah, um, and I just I think that I think about Metroid Prime frequently because it's it to this day it's one of my favorite games. It oh, it's, yeah, and it's a great example of this exact kind of like it was doing something fundamentally different. It was it was kind of throwing out the established rule book for its genre and like okay, how can we build a game that feels to control the way we want it to? And aspects of that are weird, but. They did it, and I'm thrilled they did, because nothing else is quite like the Metroid Prime games, and I love that they exist. Uh, did you know that the uh, inter- in the interface, the um, four symbols that correspond with each of Samus's weapons in the first game is, like, a hand? Yep, and if you and have if you, your yeah, x-ray okay, visor on... about this, yeah. Yeah, if you have your x-ray visor on, you can see her hand change configuration that she hits the different switches inside her gun arm. That's oh, so cool, I love Metroid Prime so God. much. And the fact that, like, I'll, I don't want to just gush about Metroid Prime, but I will never get over the fact that when, when you are exposed to a bright flash of light, you will be able to see Samus's eyes reflected in the visor that you are presumably looking through. 
Yeah. Oh, it's so good. God. Um, I was playing some of three uh, a couple nights ago, actually. And like when you enter her scan visor, she's just constantly doing that. And I think the reason why they did that was so um, when you highlight the, the reticle over like the different things to scan, like Samus's eyes will move towards where your reticle is pointing. That's so and cool. I, I love shit. these games. They just they just added an extra layer onto that cool detail. I fucking love it. Uh yeah, I don't really have much more in my brain. We get we okay. Metroid Prime and Monster Hunter were the two big ones that I yeah. wanted to talk about uh, along these lanes. I'll hit you with one last one because yeah, this is it. actually th- this is probably the biggest inspiration for this. Um, let's talk about Metal Gear Solid and camera controls. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> so a security camera, a security camera. Um, so back in like 2004 or five, whenever Metal Gear Solid Three was coming out, um, there was a I don't want to say a huge stink, but I remember reading that Kojima kind of stuck to his guns with the uh, the way the camera worked. Um, so for people who don't know, Metal Gear Solid, uh, the first, technically the first four games, if we're counting the 8-bit games, but the, the first two games, Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2, um, both have like this kind of overhead, kind of 2D Zelda camera angle going on with them. Um, yeah. And... You can the the only way to manipulate the camera in those games is to either go into a first person view with um one of the buttons on your controller, or um you have to kind of hug a wall and get close to the corner, and the game will do this cinematic view where the camera will dramatically swoop down to the corner that you're hiding behind, and you can see what's around the corner. Um. And in Metal Gear Solid 2, you can add to this by manipulating the camera with the right analog stick. But you can't do that unless you're in that view. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, this while, while we're on the subject of this, this kind of reminds me of Prince of Persia's um, cinematic view. If, if yeah. you remember like the, the 3D Prince of Persia games, you press a button and it just zooms out and gives you a more holistic perspective of the area you're exploring yeah which was super cool super cool um the only issue is you can't toggle it in uh melgersod it's it's completely contextual and so in melgersod 3 this was still in practice although you could control the camera a little bit more with the right analog stick and while i will say that the re-release of melgersod 3 does actually add a free camera and it was right to do so because the way Metal Gear Solid 3 is designed is way different from the first two games. Um, I think the what makes it interesting in Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 is... Well, first of all, um, Hideo Kojima it loves movies. Like, this is no secret to anyone who's even a casual fan of Metal Gear Solid. Um, he, he loves films. He loves referencing films in his game. And he loves uh, camera work and, you know, that that is a fascination of his. Um, And so to kind of have a game that kind of forces these moments of I have to manipulate the the very dramatic um, intentional position of this camera, I have to kind of use it to my advantage and combine it with my knowledge of like, do I hear guard uh, the footsteps of patrolling guards? Um, Is there... Is is there anyone showing up on my radar? Just stuff like that. Um, it kind of it combines to kind of create it. It it does make the game feel more cinematic. Maybe in a way that's not quite 
in the player's favor, but I, I would compare it to the fixed camera angles in Resident Evil. Yeah, and, yeah. Which they like, put to fucking use. Oh, they're so good. They look so good. The other thing that is interesting about these camera angles is it causes the player to, I would argue, pay a lot more attention to the level geometry than they normally would. Because those walls aren't just a place to hide around. They're, they're not just the, the borders of the level that you're in. They are also a tactical tool that you need to know when to utilize. Yeah. Um, especially if you're playing Metal Gear Solid without the radar on. Um, in, on Metal Gear Solid's harder difficulties, they turn the radar off. And in Metal Gear Solid 2, um, I think by its default settings, you have to find... Um, something in every room that allows you to use the radar before it it it's not on automatically so the game really kind of encourages using these cinematic camera angles and knowing when and where to do them and even just like trying them out sometimes because there's secrets involved like the change in camera perspective will show you a detail you wouldn't have seen otherwise I feel like we've joked about this before but my one of my first experiences with Metal Gear Solid because I'd never had a PlayStation <laughs> growing up uh, was playing it in uh, in Dylan's dorm room our freshman year at, at undergrad, and I was getting used to it. And it's like like you said, it's got this like top down kind of you know Zelda overworld kind of camera angle. Uh, and I was going around and sneaking, and I I sneaked into a little bunker area on the first board of the game, and suddenly. It cut to a close-up of Snake going, a surveillance camera? Because I had been spotted by a surveillance camera that I could not see on the screen. <laughs> well, Because okay. I came into that room from an angle that it did, like... Slight addendum. <laughs> yeah. You weren't, you I'm weren't... sure you could see it. Yes. I'm, I'm, no. sure, I'm sure I'm just jo <laughs> johnsing hard right now. No, you're not johnsing hard. Uh, what <laughs> happened was, you weren't seen by the camera. That, that was your warning that the camera was there. But because the camera angle had changed to show you that, that the camera existed, you weren't sure where it was in relation to your person. So That's you actually happened, ended yes. up walking directly towards it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh. And it was a very clumsy, like, way of denoting that that surveillance camera was there. Yeah. But again, that is a hiccup. That does not mean that Metal Gear Solid is a badly designed game. So. No. It just means I needed to get good at Metal Gear Solid. I mean, Metal Gear Solid is also a very clunky game. It is yeah. from 1998. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's still a fun game. <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah, that, uh, that about wraps it. We're going to call this a slightly shorter episode just because, again, my, who knows what's up with my mic? Who knows how good I'm able to make this sound in post? Hopefully it's listenable. Uh, so thank you all for joining us for this uh, discussion of when, when, when games are good, actually. Uh, Hopefully you learned about something you want to take a look at, something weird that you haven't heard of before. What's your favorite game that uses some, uh, let's call it unorthodox control schemes or design uh, decisions? I want to see. I'd love to hear about them because I, I love playing weird games, and uh, Dylan will tell you how to tell us about them in just a second. Uh, but before that, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you like our show, uh, leave a rating or review on iTunes. It means a lot. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your mailman. Uh, yeah, tell your mailman while they give you a package because we're all still being safe and not going outside much, right? Good. 
Anyway, also, you can find us wherever you get your podcast: the Apple Podcast Service, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, and if you want to know more about our show, bsgpod.com is our website where there's info about the show and episodes and descriptions of me and Dylan and all that good stuff. Go check it out. Goodbye. Hey, Dylan, what's up with social media? I thought you said goodbye. Anyway, uh, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter where our handle is at bsg underscore cast. Um, also, if you want to, you know, talk about those weird controls, like Chris was saying, uh, we would like it if you use that hashtag bsgpod. Also, a huge, huge thanks to our friend Brendan French for the key art he has provided our show. If you dig his stuff, you should check out his uh, Squarespace at brennan-french.squarespace.com. Um, his, uh, that is b-r-e-n-n-e-n-french.squarespace.com. Um, you can also find him on instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts or on Twitter at brennan underscore French. You should also go show some love to our friend BioQuery. He's the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio, Volume 1, Instrumentality. He's a great composer and producer of electronica, and he's uh, just got a ton of great music out there that you should go check out. You can find all of his music by going to soundcloud.com slash BioQuery. That's soundcloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Or by searching for BioQuery on Spotify. Thanks, as always, to our patrons over at patreon.com slash bsgpod for supporting our show. It means the world to us that we're able to make this show without losing any money, and that's all thanks to you. Uh, So thank you again to all of you. And if you are not a patron, but you like our show and want to support it in a very direct way, patreon.com slash bsgpod is the place to do that. And thank you to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. It is a great network full of podcasts about video games. And if you like our show, you'll probably like some of theirs. They're always being retweeted on Twitter over at Network. Uh, I think that does it for me. Hey, Dylan, anything else from you? No, I think we're think we're good to go. All right. Well, you all take care out there. Hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back to talk to you again in a couple weeks. And until then, stay groovy. I'm trying out some new catchphrases. How do you, what do you think about stay groovy? Hey, Earthworm Jim. Jim? Yeah. <laughs> What's that his name? It's, oh, God, it's been... Bye! Bye, everybody! Bye.